Okay, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. So first of all, it is great to see everyone this morning. That's number one. Um, number two, we continue to dedicate our Torah study, our Kabbalah study, to the safety and security of our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land of Israel and wherever good people may be found. So indeed, today's learning should be in the merit of all those that need special protection and safety and safe returns and good health and life and peace and security. Let us say Amen. amen. Um, a few mentions. We mentioned Yehuda, Ray's grandson, who is fighting to defend our homeland. Indeed, he should be safe. And uh, Hashem should watch over him. And he should continue to give you nachas and, and your son nachas, Barry nachas, and the whole mishpacha. Um, the wedding coming up Thursday. Yeah, Thursday. It's this Thursday. Wow. Obviously, I'm not going, but yeah. Well, mazel tov, Ray, on the, uh, the upcoming wedding of your granddaughter. It should be b'sha'a tova in a, in a beautiful and auspicious time. Okay, so, and I, and I think that just goes, you know, that's, that's one, of the, one of the ideas here, which is that amidst all of, the, all of the challenges that we face individually or collectively, you know, we continue to um, create light and, and uh, celebrate, you know, the joys of life, um, even as we, uh, as we pray for all, all, of it that, all of those blessings that each of us individually and collectively need. So I want to begin with setting up a problem. So here's the problem. Oh, good morning, good morning, welcome. <laughs> All right, let's, um, let's see. Yeah. You got it, yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Okay, thanks. Natan, thanks for, uh, for helping coordinate. Okay, so here we go. So I wanna set up a problem. And here is the problem. The bigger God is, the more complicated the idea of us being here is. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, we talked a little bit about this at the uh, Wednesday Kabbalah course. By the way, I should mention, if you're not yet part of the Wednesday Kabbalah course, you probably want to be part of the Wednesday Kabbalah course. It's amazing. Okay, that's a little plug for the Wednesday Kabbalah course. But here's what else I want to tell you. The name in Kabbalah for God, well, sorry, one of, the, one of the adjectives or descriptions, names of description that Kabbalah uses for God is a two-word phrase. Ein Sof. Wait, how are there balloons? Did you see that? Were there balloons by my screen? Did you guys hey, see that? Whenever you say Ein Sof in front of a Mac, that happens. <laughs> It doesn't happen with an IBM. Was that, was that literally me, or did you, did you see that? There were like these fake digital balloons that just went flying up over my face. No, I've never seen that. I've done probably a thousand Zoom classes. I've never seen that. Because you did a thousand classes. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Woo! You're the grand winner. <laughs> it's funny, because I got a call also. Something about I want a cruise. Interesting. It's been a very successful... Uh, um, they found the some video guy. you sent me from last Wednesday. Night. Really? Yes. They just kept on popping out like bubbles. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. And they found oh, I need to look into the settings now. Oh, no. I don't even know where to look. Oh, no. I have no idea where to look. Nigeria? Yeah. 
Good morning, Shana. Okay, here we go. Well, you get all the, all the hard questions right here. Okay. So here we go. All right, let's jump back in. So the name for God, the name for God that Kabbalah uses, prefers, etc., is Ein Sof. Sorry? Oh. Yes. Ein Sof means without an end. Without end. So Ein Sof, I guess we would translate as infinite. Right? The one word in English that means without end probably is infinite. Um, but that creates a problem. Right? The, the bigger we make God, the more problematic existence becomes. So think about it this way. Think about it this way. If God is really infinite, and we define infinite at least, let's, let's go in our, you know, it's hard to know what infinite means in its purest sense, but if we just think of this along I don't know, spatial lines, right? And we think about infinite as in taking up all space. Well, then that creates a problem. If God takes up all space, then what? Help me out here. What's the problem? There's not enough for us. So then where do we, where do we emerge? Right? So like if, if God literally is taking up all the space, then there's no space for us. The example that I always like to use is imagine somebody with a huge personality walks into a room. That's it. They take over the whole, the whole experience. We had such an experience. We. I love how I'm weeing NFL. Any, any football fans? Raise a fan? Yeah, okay. And even if you're not a football fan, probably aware of football. Any music fans? You guys know where I'm going with this, right? Okay, here's the deal. You have an individual who is coming to football games in the last month or so and dominating the headlines because she walks into a football game and suddenly it's like, who cares what's going on in the field? Taylor Swift <laughs> is in the stands, right? I, she's there for Travis Kelsey. He's a, a tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. Doesn't matter. It's like, it's Taylor Swift. So here's that some people, they take up a lot of space. In a good way. Not, it's not a good way. It's not a bad way. It's just, it's just a reality. They take up a lot of space. In other words, their, um, their presence and their being is just very big. And that usually doesn't leave a lot of room for others. Again, not, there's not a judgment, it's just a reality. So if God is really ain't so, then the problem is there's no space for anything else to exist. So that's the problem that the mystics deal with. That's, that's almost like the first problem. Like the original problem. Like in other religions, there's original sin. Judaism says that, pff, not so original. Right? In Ju- that was a joke. Judaism speaks about original problems. We've got an original problem. And the original problem is God is so big, nothing else can exist. So how are we here? And so Kabbalah gives an incredible answer. Kabbalah says, and it's kind of, I guess it's, if you just follow, you know, follow the construct, I I guess it flows pretty simply. Kabbalah says like this, if you have an infinite being that's taking up infinite space and leaving no room for anything else, and you want room for something else, you want others to emerge, well then, what you have to do is, there's only one option. What is that? You got to take your infinite being with infinite expansion, with ain't so to him or it or whatever, to God, and you have to take that infinitude and do what? Shrink it. Make it smaller. Reduce it. Or in the language of Kabbalah, tzimtzum it, which is the opposite of supersize it. Think about it. Think about it, right? Supersize me? What would you say? Supersize... 
I know, I'm saying there used to be a commercial, like, oh, supersize me, I guess. McDonald's, right. Supersize, huh? Where's the beef? When's, when, Wendy's, huh? <coughs> yeah. Yes. There was also a guy in Australia who only lived on fast food and then almost died and he did a documentary about that. That guy's an intense filmmaker. He's like in it for the craft. Anyway, so the opposite of supersize me is tsimtsum me. Tsimtsum literally means contraction. Contract. And, huh? About? Oh, there you go. Uh, when I was a kid, this is probably early 80s, early 90s, it was always um, Rick Moranis. Honey, I shrunk the kids. Remember that? That was fabulous. Ah, that's the golden age of cinema. Home Alone, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I'm kidding. Not so golden age, but memorable nonetheless. So anyway, back to the story. So if God is Ein Sof, and Ein Sof by definition means without end, meaning that God takes up all the space, leaving no space for anything else to exist, because how could anything else exist in the space where God is expanding everywhere? So then the only solution for that, I mean, logically, is a contraction, where God contracts and withdraws and now creates room for otherness to exist, and that's symptom. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. If that's what happens, this is, this is like the next major problem that Kabbalah has to deal with. If that happens, if God is literally contracting and withdrawing and shrinking to give space to others, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? He's small. Number one, he's small. He's not infinite. He's not infinite. Good, 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 all good. What else? What else is the problem? That is revealed. Good. What else? He's a she. He's room for evil. Good. What else? Help me out here in like kind of a, um, I don't know how to phrase it. Like, um, I guess maybe a theological problem. Like, what's the problem? Or a monotheistic problem? Yeah. 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 Before you had a God was one, was the only one. And now you have God shrunk and now you have a plus one where you now you have two and if if those if that new reality that that pops up in the space where god isn't in that absence then you have really now two forces you have god's reality you have this reality you have god plus one and that's not strictly monotheistic because the truest meaning when we say in the shema for example that <coughs> that hashem god is one it's not just that there's only one God as opposed to many gods. I mean, is that what Abraham fought for? Right, that, is it golf? Like the lowest score wins? It's like, oh, you have 500 gods. We believe in one God. Clearly, we win. Like, what was Abraham? Like, what was the whole, what was the whole chap? What was the whole idea? The whole idea is not just that God is one, but that God is the only one. Hashem Echad, God is one, doesn't just mean that there's only one God. Because I'll be honest with you, does it really matter if there's one God or two gods? Does it change that much? I mean, yeah, I just offer another prayer, conceptually. By the way, I'm not suggesting this. I'm just asking a question to get a little bit deeper in the concept. Hashem Echad, God is one, doesn't just mean, I had it ready because I knew you would come in. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry about not giving it to you earlier. So, Hashem Echad, God is one, it doesn't just mean that there's only one God, which it also means that, but it really means that God is the only one. 
God is the only real existence in existence. The problem is, if God's contraction, if the tzimtzum, which is the contraction, if God really shrinks and allows space for other, and in that space of other, God is not there, in addition to a whole host of questions, including, well, how does that exist without the power of God? Does something now have its own power of generation and creation? Aside from that, which is maybe is the, the biggest problem, aside from that, now you have God plus one. Now you have two forces. You have two forces that are energized, God and the other thing. So this leads to another problem. So again, we had a problem in, at the beginning. If God is infinite, if God is ain't so, well, how can anything else exist? So you said, okay, so here's how it worked. God shrunk, God contracted, and now gave space. But if God really contracts and gives space, now you have two forces. Now you have two entities. Now you have two you know, beings that, are, that have power and energy and, generation, uh, and, and generative ability. So now you're dealing with all sorts of issues. So, and by the way, that might be even a bigger problem. Because to, to wonder how we exist, <laughs> it's half, that's half a question. But to wonder where God exists, that's a bigger question. Right? Because at the end of the day, I'm sure we can sleep at night with the, with the philosophical question of how can we exist in the space of God? It'll be okay. <laughs> You'll be able to sleep at night. You'll figure it out. But the question of, you know, is God real? Is God the all-pervasive? Is God, or is God marginalized? That's a problem. That's a more, uh, uh, at least theologically, troubling concept. This is where Kabbalah pulls off the great, well, if you saw the email, the great vanishing act of God. This is like, this is, this is the big idea. So I wrote, again, I wrote, an, I send out an email every Friday um, previewing the, the Sunday Kabbalah class. If you're not getting those emails, let me know and I'll add you to the email list. So I wrote this week about my experience with David Copperfield. No, I didn't meet David Copperfield, <laughs> but I happened to catch at some point in my childhood a few of his specials. I remember the first one that I recall. I remember him, you know, making the Statue of Liberty disappear. You guys remember that one? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then there's... Um, it was magical. It was magical. <laughs> right? It was magical. And then... Illusional. And then you have, um, and then he made the Orient Express disappear. I remember that one clearly. I was a little bit older then. No, remember that, that one? one? He, he made the train. He did a plane also. He made a plane, train, and automobiles, right? John Candy. He made all of this stuff. He made all this stuff disappear. Now, I'm a guy that likes to spoil uh, uh, magic tricks like the rest of us. Like, if I see a good magic trick, the next thing you know, I'm Googling, like, how do you do the magic trick? I just want to know. And if I find somebody selling the trick online, I'm like, okay, good. They're not, they don't have superpowers. If I had the money or whatever or, or the interest, I could buy that trick and pull it off. Great. Good. At least I know we're safe. <laughs> this is normal. The world is still normal. Okay, good. Um, but however. He, but he's a Jewish boy. It's like, yeah. yeah, right. Oh, I always joke. I always joke like this. I asked him that. I said, what did your mom think when you You spoke to David Copperfield? <laughs> All right. Well, then, hold on. <laughs> She was, he was happy. She just wasn't happy I was a magician. She wanted me to be a doctor. Oh, she wasn't happy. That's hilarious. Well, that's... Yeah, but those feelings sort of disappeared. When she right. Was when, yeah. Once he was successful. Now, right, I'm sure when it first that launched... It's like, yeah. Well, hold on. Listen, so um, I always joke that David Copperfield could make himself teletransport from, like, the stage to the back of the audience, right? The curtain goes up and, like, 
in one second, he's behind the audience to applause. But he still had to take a cab to the theater. I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. If you can really tell a transport, why am I paying your flight? Like, what is happening? Why do I pay for transportation? Just put a, you know, just do something. Make it happen. That's my joke. Anyway, um, back to the story. William Shatner. William Shatner. Captain Kirk. Oh, right. Beam me up, Scotty. No, he needs no? Scotty to beam him up. If right. Yeah. Not it doesn't work without... Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. See, you need a you need a plus one. Mm-hmm. Now, back to the back to the story. So we started off with the problem that if God is all pervasive, if God is ain't sof, well then there's no space. So we said, well, God will withdraw. But then if God re- withdraws, then you have now you have too many spaces. Now you have God's space and other space, and that's theologically problematic. So here's where the vanishing act comes in. David Copperfield makes things disappear. But the catch is, and you and I know the catch, the catch is they don't actually disappear. The catch is he makes it look like it disappears. And even if you're standing on Liberty Island, Liberty Island, did I just make that up? No, that's what it's called. They had a group of like 50 or 100 or something people standing on Liberty Island looking at the Statue of Liberty, three, two, one, boom, and it appeared gone. Now, how did they, you guys know how they did it? They had a moving platform. That's, that, they had a massive rotating platform that rotated slowly enough they gave it enough time that it shifted this amount and they had the right screen, the right, it was, there was literally a moving platform under there. I asked you if I should spoil it. I feel terrible now. By the way, about the tooth fairy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so here's the deal. He doesn't make it actually disappear, but he makes it look like it disappears. And this is where Kabbalah comes in. Kabbalah says, it's not that God actually disappeared or actually withdrew. The tzimtzum doesn't mean that God actually contracted. I know we said that before, that God contracted to make space. But here's where Kabbalah steps in. God didn't actually do that. God doesn't actually withdraw. God doesn't actually create an absence of space. God creates the illusion that he disappeared which, by the way, might be even more difficult. Not that there's difficulty before God, but that might be even more of a wow. Because if you actually made the Statue of Liberty disappear, good on you, mate. But if, you, if it's still there and you make people think it's not there, that's some skill. That's some, I guess you could argue which is the greater skill, but that's, right? I guess it could be argued. I'm not saying anything definitive, but that's also pretty remarkable. That something's right in front of you and you're made not to see it. That's... That's incredible. That's, that's a magic trick. That's a vanishing act. That's impressive. It's right in front of you. It hasn't moved. And you can't see it? The tzimtzum, which is the great divine contraction, that great divine contraction and withdrawal where God moves out to create space, never happened. Literally never happened, but happened in our conception. In other words, tzimtzum is not a literal concept. Tzimtzum is not that God actually disappears from that space. Tzimtzum is that God creates the illusion that he disappears from that space, which is all that's required for self-consciousness 
self-awareness to emerge. All that it takes is the illusion that you're on your own to feel independent. It's like a parent, right? Who's holding on to the back of the bike and says, you're pedaling by yourself, you're, you're, but you're still holding on. Boy, I'm tired from that running. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but in parenting, this is a, a, quite, a quite common occurrence where you're creating scenarios where the child is assuming this independence and assuming their own autonomy, but in the truth, you've orchestrated all of this, right? You're still kind of pulling the strings for a certain amount of time until they can really get... When it comes to Hashem, though, this is the magic balance between the existence of other and selfhood of other and the all-pervasiveness of God and Hashem Echad and God being one and the only one. How do we reconcile both ideas? Is by this idea of tzimtzum shalokipshuta. This is an important term that I want to share with you this morning. There's tzimtzum kipshuta, which is the literal understanding of tzimtzum, which is that God, tzimtzum again means contraction. It's literally a Hebrew word that means contraction. So tzimtzum kipshuto, kipshuto means literal tzimtzum, is that God literally withdrew to create space. Simsum lokipshuto means it's not literal simsum. That means that God never left. But God creates the illusion that he left. God creates the illusion that we're on our own. God creates that illusion. And this creates this latter understanding, which is the way we, <coughs> we understand the concepts. This creates a very interesting um, result. <laughs> And was, what's the outcome? What's the, what's the implication of this? The implication is fascinating. The implication is that right here, right now, is the same all-pervasive, ain't-sof divine presence as before creation. Right here in this space. God is fully present, maxed out, 100% present, right here, like in the beginning before any of this happened. So how come we don't see God? How do we see ourselves? And in that space of divine light, we wouldn't be self-aware. We would be dissolved in that light. That's how strong that light is. So how do we see ourselves as existing? How does that happen? It's because that all-pervasive, all-pervasive, ain't-sof light of God is to us vanished, is made to disappear so that we don't see it whatsoever. It's right in front of us but we can't see it. This is the great um, trick of creation. God is right here, as in anywhere else, but we don't see it. What distinguishes our reality from higher supernal realities is not the amount that God is present, but the amount, the degree of God's presence, but the degree to which we perceive God's presence. There's a difference there. God is present equally everywhere. Ain't sof never changes. God is equally, infinitely present in all of space. The only difference is the degree to which we perceive it. If we would perceive it, we would be, again, it would be hard to exist in that space. But we don't perceive it, and our lack of perception allows us to perceive ourselves. Does this make sense? Sort of? Why did God do that? That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> because God, apparently, apparently God wanted beings that wouldn't see him and that would see themselves and would have to struggle 
to peel back those layers of concealment to discover the truth. It's kind of like Banksy. You know Banksy? The artist? He's like this uh, street artist based in the UK, and um, he paints these, you know, I don't know, he, it's kind of like um, spray paint. I think he does he spray yeah, paint. Much. It's very minimalistic, but it's really, it's, like, it's powerful. It always makes a statement. It's like statement street art. And he's become, he's become very famous. Like he'll paint, he'll, he'll do, he'll create a piece on a wall, and they'll literally like take out, dismantle the wall, and sell it for like a million dollars. That's like kind of how... How, how his art works. So the thing with Banksy is that allegedly, I mean, I think I know who he is, but allegedly no one knows who he is. So you? I don't know. I've Googled it. So like <laughs> the internet, I believe, <laughs> has theories. <laughs> He's, really cool. He's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very, it's very interesting. If he has, no one talks about it. I'm sure he's been spotted. Yeah. I, I've seen pictures of the guy that, that everyone believes is him. But the point is, it's kind of like, here's the art. But allegedly, we don't know who the artist is. It's like the artist is a secret. It's hidden. Here's this world. Here's this reality. And yet, by and large, our perception is we don't see the artist. All we see is the art. Hashtag, we are the art. All we see is ourselves. We don't see the artist. It's like imagine if an author would be so gifted at his or her craft that the author could write, create characters that literally became alive. Imagine that. Not just alive on the page to the reader, but literally became alive. But had no clue who wrote them into being. Didn't know the artist. Just knew themselves inside the story. Right? Imagine that. Be a wild, that would be a wild tale, right? An artist writes a book so vivid that those characters become alive and start operating in that world, in, this, in, in, the, in the world of the novel. That's called a movie. And it's also called a movie, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, hold on, this is what I want to see. I like this. Which one is that? He's like, he's in uh, the yeah. game, and he realizes he's a game piece, and then he becomes alive in the game. Matt, who's my, my resident expert on all this <laughs> mind-bending stuff, writes, there's a video game called Alan Wake. Am I saying that right? That is basically yeah. the story you just said, where the characters come alive. Yeah, but there's an author who's a failed writer who's writing a story, and then the characters of the story become alive in a... Right. Welcome to us. This literally the story. But here's but I, and I don't know if it gets to that point. But here's the here's the question: Will these characters be content to operate in that story that was created around them, or will they seek the awareness of the author of like who is behind all this? We're because this is this is a story that's being created. It's kind of like, and the Matrix. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of all goes back to, life goes back to the Matrix. You guys know that, right? <laughs> it all goes back to the Matrix. It's the same idea. It's like everything is powered by, the question is, we don't see it because we're all, we're in the Matrix. We don't see the Matrix. When you're in something, it's hard to see it. So the point is that God creates, God creates this reality, pulling off the greatest vanishing act ever, ever done. And that is God takes himself, leaves himself exactly where he was, 
but makes it look like he disappeared. And that's enough to give rise to self-aware, self-conscious, self-obsessed, self-oriented, sometimes self-ish human beings. That's enough. Just the illusion of God not being here, even though God is here, which makes the purpose of life all that more clear, or at least a major purpose of life. What's the objective of life? To discover the truth. In other words, to recognize that, no, this is not a space that is void or devoid of God. This space is very much filled by God. In fact, the concealment is as much a godly energy as the revelation would be. Did that line just make sense? In other words, the power that God has to conceal himself is no less a divine ability than the divine ability to reveal himself. It's still God. All of this, the darkness itself is not... I'm trying to say something else, like the next level. It's not just that God creates the illusion that he's not here. That illusion is itself divine. It's like the trick itself is a divine ability. It's a divine power, which means the illusion itself is divine. Not that we should get stuck in it, but that itself, the helem, the symptom, the concealment, the contraction, that itself is a divine power. Which, but every time he hides himself, we cause trouble. The first, correct. the very beginning, when we were a new little religion, new followers, and all of a sudden he hides himself for 40 days with Moshe on the, on the, on the mountain, and what do we do? Yep. We build a, we can't be trusted to Correct. be left alone. Correct. We need guidance. Yes. Okay. That's why we have Torah and each other. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's what we're doing. So, we're, so, since he wants us to be ourselves, does that lead to free will? Yes. Yes. But the goal of free will is to use it wisely. With great power comes great responsibility. So, yes, the goal is that freedom. The ability to choose anything. The ability to choose not to see. Or the ability not to see and therefore to make negative choices. Like Jeff just said, right? That left alone to our own devices, it oftentimes goes completely haywire. Which is absolutely valid. And a fact that we all know, we don't have to point back 3,000 years. We can look in our own lives, right? Moments that we felt alone, abandoned. Moments that we felt hurt. And, and, and um, you know, where we didn't feel God's presence, like to an even greater extent than the normal, not feeling God, um, it was very easy in those moments to, to just completely check out. Absolutely, that is, that is the danger, but that also creates the opportunity because if we still find God in those spaces and recognize that God is, that that darkness is not the absence of God, but that's God showing up as darkness, that changes everything then you are now a spiritual ninja where you don't see any darkness because all you see is God manifesting in two forms, in the light or in the darkness. But the darkness is also light. Sorry, the darkness is also God. That's, that's when, that's what Kabbalah, that's part of the elevation of consciousness that Kabbalah tries to, to share. This idea that there are there's seemingly this duality. There's God's presence and God's absence. But to break down that divide and say, oh, one second, how is God absent? How is that even possible? God's absence is his presence in the form of absence. And it may sound like a word game, but it's not. It's not. 
One example, an old example that I used to use is the example of a projector. So you have a projector that's playing a film. Right, you walk into a movie theater and there's a massive screen in front of you and there's, you know, it's, it's dark in the theater and it's, there's being this, all this projection. This, 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 the scene is happening, the dialogue, action, cars are blowing up or rom-coms are happening, whatever your genre is, or sci-fi things are, are taking place. And all of that, all of that is light coming from a projector. Nothing is actually happening over there, it's just light. But there's also a way to project darkness. You know, in between the trailer and the film, you might have three seconds of darkness. That darkness is not, is not that the projector, that the light is stopping to project. The light is projecting, but what it is projecting is a black screen. It's projecting darkness. The bulb didn't go out, right? It doesn't stop shining. It's shining darkness. God shines in two ways. God shines light and God shines darkness. When I say darkness, I don't mean doom and gloom and, and terror. When I say darkness, I mean hiding himself. God shines in a way where he shows up as, hello, I'm here, can't you see me? And God also shows up in a way that he hides himself. But both of those are God's projection. God projects in a way of positive space and negative space. The negative space is also God's space, not in a negative or absent way, but in a positive way that manifests itself as negative and absent. Does that make sense? Which means, from beginning to end, Ain Sof never changed. It was just a perception that we've been given. It's a perception that's been introduced into creation, that we exist. That perception and that absence is also God. Now, this being said, there's two ways to relate to this. And when I say two ways, I'm just simplifying things because every human being is different and everyone has their way of, 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 of dealing with all of this drama that's beneath the surface. But in general, there's two ways to, to deal. Number one is to recognize the light, is to see the light. Where you are spiritually aware, you're spiritually locked in, your soul consciousness is elevated, and you don't see any absence, you don't see any hiding, you don't see any concealment, all you see is God. I see God here, I see God there, I see God everywhere. I don't, I don't perceive the absence, I see God in all the spaces. That's, that's one possible approach. That's a real I mean, that's a really elevated consciousness. Uh, um, uh, that's a person with a really elevated consciousness, a person who perceives God in every space and doesn't see the darkness, just see, even sees that darkness as light. Basically says, I know what this is. That... Let me give you another example for this. There's a riddle. You, somebody hands you a sheet of paper, it has a riddle on it. And you're reading it, you know, I am, but, but it's like a whole, I don't know, I can't think of a riddle now, but it's a riddle, and, and you can't figure out the solution. It's, it's, it's telling a story, it's sharing a narrative, it's, it's posing a problem, and there's a solution, or there's a meaning, you know, who am I, or what is this, or how does this get solved? There's an answer, you don't see the answer. All you see is the problem, you don't see the answer. So in that space, there's two, there's two realities. There's the riddle, 
Then the, and there's the solution. The riddle's providing the darkness. It's concealing the solution. And your job is to find the solution. Correct? That's what a riddle is doing. A riddle is a helm. It's a concealment. Because you could have just given me the answer. <laughs> and we would have been fine. But no, you took the answer, encoded it in a, in a riddle, and now all I see is the riddle, and now I see, I see the cover. I don't see the... I don't see the th- Once you solve the riddle, okay, now you know the answer. Then you reread the riddle. Let's say somebody tells you the answer. Then you read the riddle. Is it, does it obscure anymore? Does it hide the answer anymore? No. Because every word that you read, you're like, oh, I know what this is. I know, and I know what this refers to. It no longer works. It's no longer a cover. You with me on this? Every word of the riddle that before was dark, dark, I have no idea, no idea, no idea, no idea. This is a good riddle. Now once you know the solution, once someone's leaked the answer, or you cheated by looking at the back page, turned it upside down, and read the fine print, yeah, once you've done that, and then you go back to the riddle, oh yeah, that's obvious. It's no longer a concealment. The, sp- the first level, the first level of spiritual warrior is the individual who has gained an elevated consciousness to see the truth in the riddle. In other words, the person who has solved the riddle. I see the riddle, but I know what it means. It's God. Concealment, 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 problem, problem, problem. I know what that really is. It's really Hashem. It's really God. Great. The next time I'm confronted with that darkness, I'm like, I know what that is. Like, I've already solved this riddle. Like, I know what this is already. I know this is God. <laughs> what? I'm going to get caught up in the, oh, I don't know what this is. What's the answer? Like, I know what this is already. That individual is somebody who doesn't see the riddle anymore, just sees solution. That's persona number one. Those individuals are very rare, yes. Are you saying, um, I'm confused. It's like, I don't understand God, who's the riddle. Now I've figured him out. I don't know what my next step is. <laughs> no, it's not I don't understand God. It's I live in a world that doesn't always look so divine. I live in a world of darkness, of pain, of suffering, of illness, of tragedy, of loss, of heartbreak, of devastation. Right? I live in this world and I don't see God. Or less dramatically, I live in a world in which, you know, I live my life, I do my thing, I go to work, I make money, I buy the stuff that I need, I buy some stuff that I want also, and I live my life. I'm doing my thing. Where's God? I don't know. That's not gonna, it's not gonna change the fact that I have to go to work tomorrow morning, right? Where's God? Who knows? Let God figure that out. I, got, I, gotta, I gotta take care of my stuff. Both of those perspectives basically share the same nukuda, the same point. And what is that point? That point is that this world is ours, right? And so we power it, we break it, we fix it, we need to work it, whatever it is, but it's our, it's our space. Kabbalah comes along and says, you really think that you have your own space? Like, that God kind of moved out and gave you your own space? Like God says, here, this is yours. See you later. That can't be. 
That creates a whole, a whole host of theological problems. So Kabbalah therefore says, God is everywhere. God is right here. The first level of spiritual, uh, the first level of spiritual warrior is somebody who sees God in the concealment, who finds God in the absence, finds God in those, recognizes that God is in those moments of, of unclarity, of uncertainty, of pain, of suffering, of, of challenge, etc. God is in those spaces. And how can God be in those spaces? I don't know, maybe they figured out the, that, you know, those philosophical conundrums, but that, that we cannot conclude that God is not in this space. Because then what is this space? So the space has to be God. The space is only God. The fact that I don't see God, the fact that I only see myself, that itself is God showing up in a form of vanished. But it's still God. God is emanating. God is projecting the illusion itself. This individual sees God everywhere. In everything, in nature, in the absence, in the pain, in the difficulty, in the challenges, this person never loses faith. This person always sees clarity. This person doesn't have a moment of, I don't see, I don't understand, let me figure it out. This person is, always has that clarity. The light is always shining for this individual. These individuals, this type of person is extremely, extremely rare. In other contexts, we might, ref- and this is, not the con- this is not the language that our text uses. It uses a different construct. But in other texts, we might refer to this person as a legit tzaddik. Tzaddik meaning a perfectly righteous person, not just that they're doing good things. Yeah, this person you know, behaves nicely. This person is completely you know, in sync, right? completely um, uh, aware of, Hashem and God's presence. That's like this higher elevated consciousness. But then you have a second persona. The second individual is someone who sees the riddle. Sorry, sees the problem. Is aware of the problem. And even though they've discovered one or two solutions to one or two riddles, by and large this person sees the concealment, sees the darkness, and struggles with the darkness. This person wakes up and struggles with the reality in front of him or her. This person struggles with right and wrong, struggles with understanding why bad things happen to good people. This person struggles with sometimes even matters of faith. Is God really real? And if God is real, where is God? This person struggles with all that. This person is someone who is confronted by the darkness. This is not someone who is just immediately suffused with light. This is not the person who sees the riddle and automatically sees the solution. This is the person who sees the riddle and gets stuck. And the, and, and the work for this person on a consistent basis is to again and again and again attempt to solve the riddle on a case-by-case basis. It's not like every riddle that's it's like, um, again, Matrix, just Matrix is now in my head. Uh, what was his name? Who's the actor? Keanu Reeves. You guys remember the Matrix a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which one? Keanu, um, Keanu Reeves. No, which, which movie? The, fir- the, the first one. Okay. This is the first one. We'll go simple. Okay. Right? The first one, the first Matrix film. Right? So Keanu Reeves, at some point, becomes aware of the Matrix. And then he walks outside and everything that he sees are those lines of code, right? All he sees is the code. He doesn't see what the code produces, like what, he doesn't see the physical incarnation of the code, he sees the source code. 
In other words, he, he's, his mind, his consciousness is illuminated with code. That's the first level. The first level is somebody who sees everything as God. Even the darkness is also God's script. It's just a different set of code. It's still God. It's still divine code. There's nothing else that's powering this other than God. It's all God. So this person sees God in everything. Now, if they were coding something, would they code it differently? Maybe. But they don't have a question of where is God or is this God or how can I find God? They're seeing God everywhere. The second persona is somebody who gets stuck in the riddle, gets stuck in the matrix. A person who knows that there's a greater truth but doesn't live 24-7 in that greater truth. A person who's had a moment, uh, moments of epiphany, standing at the foot of a mountain, hearing divine, the divine voice, but 40 days later, backsliding into tendencies of selfishness, tendencies of self-preservation, or frankly, tendencies of fear. Why did they create the golden calf? They were afraid. You're only afraid if you don't see God. If you see God, you're not afraid. How bad can it be? It's God. It's when I don't see God that I'm afraid. How often do we operate out of fear? There's a woman from England who lives in England, Michal Oshman. She wrote a book. She's head of, or was, or is, head of uh, diversity or inclusion or something at TikTok. Who would have thought that that position exists? Anyway, but no, TikTok. And so she, and she, she, wrote, she started studying Tanya, and she wrote a book. What would you do if you weren't afraid? If you weren't what? Afraid. Think about it. Fear is such a motivator. How many things in our life did we not do because we were afraid? How many things that we wanted to do or we knew that we should do, we didn't do because we were motivated out of fear? Without a question, the golden calf is made because of fear. Because of fear. Where's Moses? They're getting panicked. What's going to happen? Who's going to lead? We got to do something. Golden calf. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Fear. Fear driven. October 7th. Yeah, right. I, let's, let's, let's just let's focus on. Here's the deal. You think about the tree of knowledge, right? What happens? How does the serpent convince Eve? Chava to eat from the tree. He says, ah, you know why God said not to eat from the tree? Because God knew that if you eat from the tree, you're going to be like, uh, you'd be like God, knower of, good and evil, knower of good and evil. So now, now you're afraid. You're never going to gain that consciousness. This is your one chance. We do a lot of crazy things out of fear, and there's a lot of things that we don't do out of fear. Fear is probably the biggest motivator. I mean, look, the news knows it. The media knows it, right? The one, the one great truth of the media is that it will always feed us the stories that create, that generate the greatest fear because it knows that people will always respond to fear in the strongest way. That's the way things work. People respond to fear in the absolute strongest ways. Getting back to this point, the point over here is the person that sees the person that sees the divine in everything, a person that doesn't see the riddle, but sees the solution, <coughs> that person operates with no fear. 
with only absolute clarity. The person that doesn't see God is getting a little, uh, a little nervous. It's like, is this all going to work out? How do I know that this is going to work out? You know, where does this, how does, you know, where does this end? It's when you don't see God that you begin panicking. You mean, I have to do all this? I have to take the whole burden on my shoulders? What if I can't do this? That, it creates a lot of fear. This class is really not about fear, although it just came up. This class is really about two modalities, two possibilities. There's the possibility of seeing God everywhere and the possibility of not seeing God everywhere. You can either see the Statue of Liberty disappear and say, oh, it's gone. Or you can say, it's here the whole time. But it's being projected in a way of absence. But it's still here. So that's, that's the simple, that's the, that's the question. Do we see God in the absence equally as with, as equally in the absence as in the presence? Or do we take the absence seriously? And literally, and think, oh, God is not here. That's the question. This leads, yeah. So how do you reconcile this with the story of a pious Jew who's, there's a flood, and he's on the first floor, and a rowboat comes along. Yeah, love this one. This is good. <laughs> how do you, you know, No, so finishes. Yeah, so the, there's a flood, and the person said, they bring a rowboat. No, God will save me. They bring a helicopter. God will save me. Last chance, God will save me. Dies. Comes up to God. Where were you? I sent a rowboat. I sent a helicopter. I sent. So where did this doesn't good. So even so, f- you're asking an excellent question, but I will tell you, there's I have two answers. Not I have two answers. There's two answers brought to this question. Answer number one is the easier answer. Answer number one is, even though God is here and God is present in the void, God wants us to operate. In that void, in the absence. In other words, God wants us to utilize the faculties of absence to make our own plan because that's part of God's plan. All right, that's one answer. You know what the other answer is? Someone who really sees the truth should not rely on the rowboat. <laughs> and I'll, I'll give you a biblical story that you know. Yosef. Joseph. S- his brothers kidnapped him. They wanted to kill him. They threw him into a pit with snakes and scorpions. They eventually pulled him out. They sold him to the Ishmaelites. He ends up in Egypt. That's quick lead up to the story of Joseph in Egypt. Now Yosef, Joseph is in Egypt. He works for a guy named Potiphar. And he's doing great. So like he had a massive, you know, like... Life changed for the worse, but now he's picked himself up. Well, Potiphar's wife likes this guy. She wants to be with him. She attempts to, uh, to, to, facilitate, to create that opportunity. He rejects that. She accuses him of assault, and he ends up now in, in a dungeon, right in, in prison in a dungeon. There, there's the butler. At some point, years later, whatever it is, there's a butler and a baker. Apparently, the candlestick maker was not available. Anyway, the butler and the baker are there. And they both have a dream. Right? The butler has a dream. The baker has a dream. And they wake up one morning and they're very disturbed by their dream. They don't know what it means, but they feel like these dreams are very important. So they ask jo- so, they, so Joseph sees that they're all concerned. What's wrong? We had dreams. We don't know what they mean. He says, tell me the dream. Hey, let me give it a shot. You know? 
God knows how to interpret dreams. Let me try. Because <laughs> he's saying, he, you know, I have access. So they tell the dream. So he says, oh, the butler, in three days, it's going to be Pharaoh's birthday. He's going to be throwing a party. He'll need a bartender. He'll remember that he threw you into a dungeon. So he'll call you out. He'll schlep you out. And he'll uh, put you back in your position. You will become, once again, the royal butler. Mr. Baker, based on your dream, which included carrying baskets of bread on his head and having like ravens or birds pick at it, uh, you're going to be hanged and the birds are going to eat your flesh. Awkward. So that was, uh, can you imagine the, the baker after what wonderful news for his buddy, the butler, hearing that news? It's like, oh, wait, is there, can I get, you know, ChatGPT, can, can I get another version of that? Can you reinterpret that for me, please? So that's, that's, the, that's what comes down. And indeed, he is hanged. What happens? Right before the butler leaves, Joseph tells the butler one thing. He makes one request. What is it? Remember me. Remember me. Remember me, when you go in three days, or today, or tomorrow, whatever it is, when you stand in front of Pharaoh and pour Malachayim, put in a good word for me. Right? Put in a good word for your buddy Joe, who just gave you such good news. The Torah says, the butler did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. It uses both expressions. He did not remember him, but he forgot him. For two years. Until two years later, Pharaoh has a set of dreams. And now he's looking for a dream, a dream master. And, and the butler says, oh my, I totally forgot about this guy. He's, I know a guy, I have a guy, he's great with dreams. You might want to consult with him. And then they bring out Yosef. <coughs> Rashi. Rashi, on the verse that says that the butler did not remember him, but he forgot him. Rashi says, why did this happen? Why was Joseph destined to languish in prison for another two years until Pharaoh had his dreams? Because he relied on human help. Because he asked the butler to intervene. He shouldn't have asked the butler. And everybody's eyebrows are raised. The rowboat, the helicopter, the butler. We have to use all of our diplomat. We have to use all of our contacts. We have to do things smart. We have to use, utilize the tools at our disposal, right? If you're Joseph and you're stuck in prison and a guy's getting out that you just helped, call in that favor. How is that wrong? He got punished for two years because he relied on another human being. What was he supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to make a plan with, with, uh, with what God gives us? God helps those who help themselves. Right. So he, had, he was helping himself. God says, no, you shouldn't have. Why? The answer brought in Kabbalah is because if you're a Joseph, if you're a Joseph, which means if you have access to that clarity, to that light, to that pure truth, if you're already behind the matrix, why are you operating within the matrix? <laughs> if you have access to the source, why are you fooling around here on the front end? If you have access to the code, why are you working to, to mask or band-aid that other part? Rob? Uh, I don't understand. Why, um, <laughs> why did Abraham, this bothers me, this one thing bothers me. Why did Abraham, he didn't trust that God would save him and not kill him because of his wife. Okay, say you're my sister. Right. That he didn't rely on God. He had access to the matrix. No. Good. Abraham, father of all. Right, you would think. Good. Or what happens when... Joseph, 
Joseph is punished for the basically, in my mind, the same thing. Sure, making a plan. God, why, why is how are we supposed to know which situation? We're sure, in? that's a, that's an excellent question. Also, I, yeah. Making a plan. Millions of Jews manipulating the system. Right, making a plan, working with what you got. Hitting the rock. Hitting the rock, right. Biggest sin of all. Right, hold on. We now, now, we're, we're, we have so many things. I, I, it's it's going to get a lot to, I would say even for, even the first story of Abraham, God tells him to go to, to Israel, to Canaan, Israel. There's a famine and he, bow, he checks out. He goes to Egypt. Where's the faith? God will provide. Stay put. God says, go to the land that I will show you. Who told you to move? There's no commandment for it. Good question. I don't have a good answer. <laughs> but I will say it says specifically about Yosef HaTzadik, that Yosef, where he was, it could be that as the first, as the progenitor, as the, as the, as the, as the original, you know, first Jew, he was still working through that process. Could be. I'm speculating. But at, by the time it gets to Yosef, Yosef Atzadik, by the time it gets to him, he's expected on every level to operate not by playing the system, but going straight to the source. That's what it, I, I can't, I, I'm saying I don't have the answer as to why I've run. What, what does he have to rely on? Says, oh, what did my grandfather do? Oh, well, he said. I hear you. He created Kaylee. I'm with you. I'm with you. Right. Make a Kaylee. I'm with you. I understand the question. I don't know that I have a good answer other than to say this is what it says in Kabbalah. That what was the reason why he had a language for another two years? Because he shouldn't have. Where he, who he was and where he was at in his own spiritual consciousness, he didn't need to rely on a human being. He didn't need to rely on um, uh, diplomatic efforts, as it were, to get him out. He should have put pure trust in God. Throughout his experience... He didn't rely on anybody else. He just did what he needed to do, and he was flourishing. And he ended up in prison, but by all accounts, every dip that he had always led to something up. Now, it eventually did lead to something great, and you know, he becomes viceroy, and he saves his family, and you know, and I guess on some level gets us all stuck in Egypt, but that also led to... There's a book that I love, a kid's book. It's called... What's it called? Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately? You guys know this book? Every page, every page... It goes back and forth between something good, something bad. Fortunately, main character name, I don't know what it is, I don't remember, got invited to a birthday party. Unfortunately, it was in a different town. Fortunately, he had access to an airplane. Unfortunately, the engine uh, blew up. Fortunately, he had a parachute. Unfortunately, it didn't open. Fortunately, he landed in something soft. Unfortunately, there were alligators. Fortunately, it goes, every page goes back and forth. I don't even know why I'm saying this. Oh, because Yosef's life is like up and down. But I guess, this is what it says. I, you're asking very good questions and we have to look at the bigger picture and what Kabbalah says about those other stories. But in this one instance, Kabbalah says that Yosef was held to a higher standard, to a standard of not needing the keli. Typically we operate, that's why first answer is, we got to make a plan, we got to take the rowboat. If you are on the level of Yosef, you don't need a rowboat, right? There is no spoon. It's a reference, once again, to the Matrix. Probably, well, possibly, because um, Yosef was so good at manipulating people, and he knew how to hang his brothers on and get thrown into it, which wasn't so smart. But he was a natural politician, and he was a manipulator. Um, maybe for the rest of us, uh, you know, we think, oh, we'll just rely on God, because if we're, if we're manipulating, it shows a lack of trust in God. Yeah. 
it's harder for us to actually manipulate and, and manipulate because we think we're messing with God's plan and we're taking it into our own hands, whereas it's, see, apparently that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I'll tell you this. It just said, one thing we know about Yosef is that he had access to a different channel. And if you have access to that channel, then apparently, based on this teaching, that is what you are meant to, to access. I'm going to send these around. We're going to study some inside text. Because everything that I just told you now is related to two phrases that we're going to analyze today. Um, please take and pass. Please take and pass. Okay. I'm going to share this on Zoom as well. So for our online crew, you guys are in good hands. Here we go. Okay. So we did, some, we did this last week, but I want to review some key concepts <coughs> that hopefully are clarified today. I want to draw your attention... I want to draw your attention to page 22. Now, your copy may already be folded past page 22, which is fine, because again, we did that last week. But I would like to draw your attention to page 22. Two lines from the bottom. Two lines from the bottom, three words from the end. This is the English side. Is the word Elohim. Do you guys see that? Elohim, it's italicized because it's a Hebrew word. Elohim is one of the names of God in Scripture. In fact, it is the first name of God in Scripture. It is uh, the third word of Torah, Bereshit, bara Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created. So Elohim is one of the names of God. The other name of God, one would say perhaps the most popular name of God, not that it's a popularity contest, is... Right, or spelled Yudke Vavke, right, which is in Kabbalah is re... The letters are switched around so that we can actually say something that we're talking about and have a have somewhat of a, of a reference as the name Havaya. So this these this is important, and I want to use these terms so that we're all on the same page here. Elokim and Havaya. Havaya is the four letter name of God that we don't pronounce the way it's written. Yudke Vavke, Havaya. That's Havaya, and Elokim is the other name of God that also we don't pronounce exactly the way it's written because it has a hey, not a not a kuf. Elokim though is the way we pronounce it. So we have Elokim. And Havaya. Hashem is, is Havaya. Yeah when, yeah, when we say Hashem, usually it's referring to the four-letter name of God, Havaya. So we have Havaya and Elohim. Those are the two major names of God. There's a verse in Psalms. Ki shemesh umagain Havaya Elohim. Ah, ki shemesh, for a sun, umagain, what's magain? Shield. Sun and a shield, magain, like magain David, right? So for a, the sun and a shield... Or Havaya Elohim. Remember when you were a kid and you had those tests and it had like this is to this as this is to this, right? And you had to like figure out the last one or one of the ones. It's like these equations, these logical things. Okay. Shemesh, Magain, Havaya Elohim. Sun, shield, across from sun equals Havaya, shield equals Elohim. What does that mean? You could... But we're not, because <laughs> it's it's an or shemesh umagain, because this A and B are parallel to Havayalokim. So A to boom, 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 boom. Havay shemesh umagain, Hashem alokim. Sun shield, Hashem Havayalokim. Now, what is sun and what is shield? So Kabbalah teaches 
that this is a reference to light and darkness. Shield literally means a cover, a barrier of protection. Shemesh umagin, the sun and its shield is basically a reference to what we spoke about, what I spoke about earlier, which is God's infinite presence and God's concealment symptom. Shemesh is revelation, the sun shines. Magin is concealment, the shield, the block. But as I've told you today, who does the blocking? Who is the block? Who is the mugging? Also Hashem, correct? If that point didn't come across, then I have failed today, right? What is the concealment? Who is the concealment? Where does the concealment come from? That's also God. God does the, does the vanishing, but God doesn't really vanish. He makes it look like He vanished. And that illusion is also God. God is the sun and is the shield. Does that make sense? Kishemesh umag in Hashem Elokim. God. Hashem Elokim. Both names of God. God is both the sun and the shield. But it uses two different names. Kabbalah picks up on that and says, we use, the Torah uses two different names of God whenever these two modalities are being switched. When, God's, when God is in a state of openness, the name Havaya is used. Yurke Vavke, Hashem is used. When God's, God is in a state of concealment, when God vanishes, still God, but God hiding, Scripture uses the name Elohim. It's no surprise then that as the Torah opens up with the story of creation, creation being literally the story of otherness emerging, what name is the dominant name? Elohim. Concealment. Because creation is a product of God hiding. If God never hid, we wouldn't be here. It's Elohim that is the basis of our reality. Bereshis, bara Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created. Well, where's Hashem? Where's Havaya? Isn't that the, the big name of God? Yeah. That's the name when God says, here I am. But if God says, here I am, in the full measure, we don't exist. So our reality is predicated on Elohim. Our consciousness of self-awareness is Elohim. It's only a chapter later that the Torah first uses the name Havaya. Signifying that once we exist as self-identifying creatures, our avodah, our work is to discover the truth of life. To peel back the curtains. To find out who this artist is. To discover the truth of reality. To realize, oh, it's not just nature. It's not just concealment. It's not darkness. This too is God. Nature itself is God. The darkness itself is God. The concealment is holy. The vanishing act is the same, the same force as the non-vanishing act. It's the same God showing up in two different ways. And by the way, although scripture uses two different names, Havaya to indicate revelation, Elohim to indicate concealment, which is still God. God's presence in the darkness. God is that darkness. Ultimately, the third level of consciousness, because we've talked about two, level one consciousness is I exist. Level two is, oh, I only exist because God is hiding, but God is the hiding. So how much do I really exist? It's still all God. But level three awareness is what we say at the end of the Elenu. 
You shall know today and take it to heart. Ki Hashem hu Elokim. That Hashem is Elokim. There's no two different forces. Havaya and Elokim are really the same. That's already, that's high level. That's high level stuff. Not just I see, I recognize that there's God in revelation. Or that there's God also in concealment. But there's really no two different forces either. It's all the same revelation. It's God showing up in a way of light. It's God showing up in a way of darkness. But it's still God showing up. Both names of God are one. That's the deepest level. But rewinding this back into our text, and I just want to show this to you, and then we're going to close it out today. When we talk about Yaakov and Yisrael, Jacob and Israel, two names for our third patriarch, Kabbalah describes why the need or what, what, what the role of these two names are. And Kabbalah says, here's what it is. Yaakov, Jacob, represents the individual who's stuck in the darkness. The individual who sees the darkness and takes it seriously and gets stuck and has to fight with the darkness. Someone who sees the riddle and knows there is a solution, but doesn't see the solution yet. Yaakov is when we find ourselves in those moments of darkness and whether they're the big moments or the, the everyday moments of like, I got to go to work. I got to do this. I have all these things. I don't know that I have time for God today, right? Those little, those little experiences of darkness. Anytime we get stuck in darkness, we are in a space of Yaakov, which means that today is going to be a day in which I need to fight my way out of that box because I see the darkness. I feel the darkness. I'm taking it seriously today and I need to deal with it. That's who Yaakov is. Yaakov is fighting, give me one second, Yaakov is fighting through the Elohim concealment to find the solution, to find the truth, which is the Havaya light. Yeah, yeah, but then it's, but that, yes, for a moment. Right, but he still gets called Yaakov after that. In other words, the, for the Yaakov person, even after finding that breakthrough in this moment, it, you, the next moment you fall back into the, into the space. So you solve this riddle, then the riddle becomes another, then, then you have another riddle. The Yisrael persona, Yisrael, Israel, signifies the person who no longer sees the darkness, who no longer sees the concealment, who no longer sees the riddle, but only sees the solution. Yisrael is someone who's not fighting with darkness. Yisrael is collecting light everywhere. This is light, that's light, the third thing is light, 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 light. The Yisrael persona sees light everywhere. Everything is an opportunity. Doesn't get down with the darkness, but sees it as an opportunity to generate, to create, to collect, to indulge in, to celebrate, to bring out the light. Two different personas. Yisrael does not see the darkness, only sees the light, sees the truth, sees the solution to the riddle and everything. Reads the problem with the answer already in mind. Doesn't get stuck on the problem. Sees the solution. That's Yisrael. Yaakov, Jacob, sees the problem, has to work toward the solution. Once getting the solution, gets another problem placed in front of him or her. Why is this relevant? Number one, it's in our text. Number two, it reminds us, number two, it's going to lead to a greater discussion about where to invest our spiritual energy and how to how to really maximize our impact on the world and our work internally. Identifying where we are 
Yaakov, where we are Yisrael, because it's not either or. In some areas, we are Yisrael. Some areas, we are not challenged. In some areas, we have profound challenge internally and externally. And it's about identifying where those spaces and opportunities, where those challenges and opportunities are. That's number one. And where to invest our energy. And in this, uh, in this text, which we'll do next week, we'll talk about the Son of God. That sounds like we're talking about something else. But the persona, the, 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 the Oved, the one who serves God in a way of a child versus the way of a servant. And that's going to be the main, the main uh, um, exercise for next week. Child versus servant. What does that look like? How does a child show up for a parent versus a servant to a master? On, uh, on, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we say, Im kav, Im kibanim, Im We say in the prayers, whether we're like children or whether we're like servants, there's two personas. There's the child to God, to parent persona, and then the servant to master, us to God persona. So we'll talk about that. But I think relevant to today's conversation, <coughs> and really the idea that I want to bring out today, is that in a world of profound darkness, it's really important to recognize that at the core, ain od movado. There's nothing else besides for God. And that ain self energy, that ain self presence that existed at the beginning of creation is still here now. God's presence, God's infinite presence is right here in this space. The fact that we see ourselves, that is the illusion, right? That is the, it's the divine illusion. It's intended to be. It's not a fluke. We're following the script, but at its core, it's an illusion because the truth is that all of this, even the absence of God, the, the perceived absence is also God. Knowing this means that we know that at every moment we are existing, we are living in this divine space. Number one, it can give us more joy in our lives, in our divine service. Number two, it can provide more clarity to where we need to be. And number three, once you know that this is a riddle, even if you don't always see the solution, you know that there is always a solution. May this week, as we start this week, you know, today's Sunday, Yom Rishon, may this week be indeed a, a week of light and a week of clarity for all of us and our people and our homeland. And may indeed there be an end to the riddle. For whatever reason that God is obscuring all of this, and we don't, we don't know why, but we can certainly pray that all of the concealments be removed and that the light shine forth in its full measure. And indeed, we should see the Havaya in the Elohim, that in the space, in our physical space, we should see the clarity of the light come through. Let us say, Amen. Amen. All right, thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah Cafe. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Don't forget, if you haven't yet joined Wednesday, <coughs> we have an incredible Kabbalah course going on right now. I know this was Kabbalah also, but we have an incredible six-week Kabbalah course that is happening on Wednesday. So please join us if you're not yet involved. Mariana, great to see you. I didn't have a chance to welcome you. Alex, great to see you. Amen, amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Alex, great to see you. Nice to see you. Fran, great to see you. Matt, always Hi. love the, um, the video references, video game references. Good. Tony, as always, great to see you. Um, <coughs> all right, we'll see you guys soon. Catch you Wednesday, hopefully. Take care, everybody. Shavuot Tov.
Record. Oh, 